welcome to this special ProPass webinar series. We have started a collaboration with ProPass Consortium and are publishing their webinars in podcast format so more people can benefit from their useful content. In short, ProPass is an international research collaboration platform of cohorts using Taiwan accelerometry to explore the effects of physical activity, posture, and sleep patterns on a wide range of health outcomes. Without further ado, let's jump to ProPass webinar. All right, so welcome back, everyone. We'll get started with our third session for the evening. This one will be entitled Commercial Wearables in Population in Population Research and Healthcare, talking about the special BGSM editorial that was released back in August. And for our first speaker, we have Professor Jason Gill. Jason is a professor of cardiometabolic health at the University of Glasgow. He's a past chair of the British Association of Sport and Exercises, Division of Physical Activity for Health, and a member of the development groups for the Scottish Intercollegiate Guidelines Network for the Prevention and Treatment of Obesity and for Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease. Thank you very much, Jason. You're muted. You're still muted. Sorry, sorry. We've been doing these for so long. I, I can't look it up. Are, are you seeing my screen? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, great. Thanks, Matthew. So, so I'm delighted to to speak to the to the group ProPass group today. Um, thank you, thank you very much. So, I'm going to talk to you about two out of three different editorials that we submitted for the to the British Journal of Sports Medicine were published a few weeks ago on challenges and opportunities with wearables. So. After me, Professor Tim Chico is going to be talking about wearables and healthcare. And I'm going to talk about wearables opportunities and challenges with respect to guidelines and the design of interventions, and also whether steps could be part of physical activity recommendations. I'm going to put the acknowledgements up front because there was a great team of people working on this. All, all the names are up there and, and the, the views here represent the views of a, of a, of a, of a large number of people who you'll all be, many of you will be familiar with. So let's kick off with the first of the two editorials. This audience then needs to be told that use of wearables is increasing. Um, there's an estimate that there's probably about 250 million users of wearables in the world at the moment, and that's expe expected to, to continue to grow. But one of our challenges is the guidelines that we use to, to, to recommend how much physical activity people do are largely based on data from self-report. And this is something that is not new to, to anybody, anybody, anybody on this call. So, so we look at the, the dose response relationship from self-reported physical activity and risk of adverse health outcomes, such as a mortality from any cause. We see a dose response relationship that looks a little bit like this. You can draw the line about where, where, where you should recommend them. The level of activity at many different points. It was, it was drawn at the point where you see the dotted line. Uh, on about 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week. Um, and that gives you about a 30% lower risk of all-cause mortality. Um, and then what we see is you get the maximum benefit where the, where the line plateaus out at about 500 minutes of physical activity, uh, moderate to vigorous physical activity per week. And of course, you all know that when we measure physical activity using a device, we get different numbers. So there've been a number of different studies that have been published. I've just picked this harmonized meta-analysis from Northeastland. It was published a few years ago in the BMJ. 
And what we see is if you want to get to a 30% lower risk compared to people that are inactive, when you're looking at physical activity measured using a device, it's about 35 minutes a day. And if you look at the maximum benefit you get, it occurs at about 20 minutes per, per day or 140 minutes per week. So what we've got is very different numbers about how much physical activity we need to do to, to optimize health, depending on whether you measure physical activity by self-report or whether you measure it using a device. So what, 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 I've, what I've shown is a bit on the, the example one, really, that what you find is people over-report continuous blocks of physical activity. So if you ask people on a questionnaire how much activity they do, they think of a block of time in which they're active and they assign that whole time to physical activity. But the reality is what's happening at the, at the bottom of the picture is there's, there's variable amounts of physical activity. So, when, so the amount of physical activity that's measured by a device is actually smaller than the amount people actually do. And this leads to challenges with recommending how much physical activity we need. But there's another side, which is devices. So questionnaires don't really pick up the incidental activities of daily living, particularly vigorous incidental activities of daily living that, that we do. So this is, this is an example. So if somebody's walking up the stairs or carrying shopping, um, they might do a minute, two minutes, three minutes at a time of vigorous physical activity that you won't pick up. So questionnaires, so, so devices, questionnaires overestimate the amount of time you spend in continuous physical activity and they underestimate the time you spend in, in sort of intermittent small bouts of incidental activity. So this is um, a paper that Manos and, um, and Matthew led on published in Nature Medicine last year, which shows that when you look at these very small intermittent amounts of physical activity during a day, which were called VILPA or vigorous intermittent, vigorous intermittent physical activity, so two or three or four minutes per day seems to substantially reduce risk of all-cause mortality. And this is in people who report doing zero leisure time physical activity. So these small incidental activities of daily living appear to be important, and these are not captured in, 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 in recommendations for physical activity at all. So, so one of the lines that came out of this, this first review is that the guidelines actually reflect the dose response relationship between what people think they're doing, perceived physical activity, than what people are actually doing when you measure it using a device. Um, and this means that the numbers in terms of how much physical activity we need to be doing for our health might be different from what the guidelines are currently saying. So there's a challenge here because the self-reported numbers for how much physical activity we need to do are probably not correct. The device-based measures are, are probably closer to being correct. But which numbers should we use in the guideline? If we use a device-based measure, how do people who, are, who don't have a device know what they're doing the appropriate amount of physical activity. And this is different from the surveillance. You can do the surveillance and match it up, but this is the average regular person on the street. How do they know whether they're meeting the physical activity guidelines? The current, the current data suggests about 4% of the population have a wearable device which can measure physical activity. Similarly, if you go the other way, if you stay with the self-report, when you're trying to measure physical activity using a device, you, you, you're, not, you're not measuring the right thing. And actually having two different numbers might be confusing. So there's a challenge here. So what are the consequences of this choice? There are also some opportunities to maybe do things a little bit differently. And I'm just going to explore some of the opportunities and challenges uh, that we might have over the next few minutes. And the first of this, this is, I think, the most exciting bit, is there is an opportunity to develop new approaches 
to encourage people to become more active. So lots of the work that um, um, the ProPass um, Consortium have, have, have led on, given us huge new insights into how dose and pattern of physical activity influence health outcomes. So some really, really exciting data have been generated. I think where there's a gap is that we can leverage this data to try and develop new approaches to help support people becoming more active. For example, some people might be put off, particularly people who are the most inactive, who would benefit the most from increasing physical activity, might be put off by the very scary big numbers current physical activity recommendations suggest. And if, if, the, if the story with Vilpa is true, they might be able to do very small amounts of activity. So we could develop new interventions which are supported by a device which get people to do three or four bouts of two, a couple of minutes of walking up down the stairs a day. And we can use the device to guide the recommendation, to guide intervention, and also monitor whether people are doing it. But we need to do trials on this. We need to do trials to say, what is the efficacy of this compared to doing nothing or compared to a conventional approach? And what's the long-term effectiveness? Are people more likely to stick to this approach over a year, five years than they would with the conventional approaches? But if it does, then it increases the range of options that are available to people to increase physical activity. And, and we know that one size doesn't fit all. So I think there's a huge opportunity here for data scientists, like, like many of the people in the ProPass Consortium, and behavioral scientists and trialists to work together to do these randomized trials to work out these, these new approaches. We've, we've heard about research-grade versus consumer devices, and I don't really need to, 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 to rehearse the, the arguments here. But there's, there's, there's a couple of things where consumer devices might provide a huge opportunity. The, the, the research devices are generally worn short-term. There's issues with scalability because of the logistics of cost of delivery and return. And the, the wearable devices are worn long-term, so we can understand things about trends and variability in activity. Proprietary algorithms, I'm a bit more reassured about proprietary algorithms now, but the different devices are measuring, uh, are measuring different things. And, and we do have limited data with health outcomes. We, we might have very simple measures with research-grade devices, but we know the association between those measures and health outcomes. And we don't necessarily know this with, with consumer devices. And this is not my area, but there are potential issues around data ownership and privacy about accessing these data. Something that's really important is they're used by rich people who are interested in their health. So we're not getting a representative population. And I think um, understanding what happens in, in, a, in a wider group of people um, is, is very important. So what we need research on? We need research on how the metrics relate to each other so we understand that we're measuring the same thing. And this is challenging because the proprietary algorithms are changing quite fast. And really, really importantly, we need to understand how the metrics which come from the consumer devices actually relate to health outcomes. There is some data, are some data from the All of Us research program, which use people's own Fitbits, but that's only on steps. And that's probably the simplest metric that you can get out of a device. What about other metrics? And we also need data in more, more diverse populations. Finally, with this first, this first, this first article is if we're going to change physical activity guidelines to reflect the evidence from device devices, we actually need to monitor physical activity using devices. And this presents challenges around equity and access. And this is particularly true in low and middle income countries. And we need issues about the, for the 95% of the population that don't own a wearable, 
how do they know whether they're meeting the guidelines? And we and having two different numbers, but this is the amount of activity you need to do if you're using a device versus this is with self-report might be might be might be confusing. But there's but there is a potential way forward, which is using steps. And this is the this is the the, the content of the second of the two three editorials, which was led by led by led by Manos. One of the things with steps is. 93% of the population, at least in the UK, and I guess it's the same in other high-income countries, own a smartphone which is capable of counting steps. So most people have a device which they keep on them all the time that can count steps. And about 18% of the population own, own a, wear, a wearable tracker. So there's an opportunity. We don't necessarily have the access issues if we use steps and, and you can count them on your phone. The, the other thing that's firstly helpful with steps is there isn't going to be confusion with a self-reported measure of minutes of MVP and steps to completely different measures, the different units, nobody's going to manually count their steps. So we, so, so we can have a stepping target alongside an MVPA target, which is based on self-report within the same guideline without, without, causing, without causing confusion. There are some challenges. The optimal step count probably depends on where you're placing your device. Here's some data showing that if you have a wrist-worn device, you get this sort of plateauing off with a benefit at about 10,000 steps per day, at least this population. Whereas with a waist-worn device, it's at a lower number here. It's about 7,500 steps. This might be due to hours that the, the devices um, are worn or the way that you, you count steps. So brushing your teeth uh, might, might count as a step with, um, with a wrist-worn device that wouldn't with a waist-worn device. And there's also issues where the age of people might influence the, the optimal amount of steps. There's some evidence that suggests that the optimal amount of steps that you need to do to maximize benefit is smaller if you're older than than if you, than if you're than if you're younger. But but this is but this isn't but this isn't insurmountable. Steps are probably the easiest metric to 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 harmonize, I guess. But there are differences in how, in how they're measured in different devices. For example, static shuffling might be counted differently. And so we need to be able to make sure that we're measuring the same thing with steps. There is, there is an issue around making sure that if we have a, an MVPA guideline, which is largely based on self-report and a stepping guideline, then it needs to be complementary rather than antagonistic. And are, are they measuring about the same amount of physical activity? There is an issue here that steps measure all activities all, at all different intensities, whereas MVPA is a subset of this. And if you just looked at the 150 minutes of MVPA per week, you're looking at two, two and a half thousand steps per day, whereas people um, are, are probably accumulating maybe five or six thousand steps from sort of light intensity activities on top of that. There is an opportunity to consider intensity-based stepping metrics to, to, to get some of this alignment with MVPA best. So for example, the devices, you could have minutes or number of steps above a threshold, such as 100 or 100 step, 110 steps per minute. And be in, we, need, we need to do work to see the extent to which that is independently associated with health outcomes over and above total numbers of steps. But that sort of work is, is relatively straightforward to do with the data that we, we have available. So I'll just finish off by saying we're in exciting times. Uh, wearable devices are already transforming how we research, prescribe, and monitor physical activity. And there are many opportunities to understand how different activity behaviors and different activity metrics influence health, which I think there's lots of work being done. And I think this work is really, really exciting. I think where we um, can do more 
And I think it's a really exciting space over the next decade. And um, is to understand how we can use this information to change the way that we deliver interventions to try and support people to increase physical activity. And this requires collaboration between lots of groups of people. Um, and in particular, we need to collaborate with industry and public health communities to try and try and maximize the, the potential here. Um, and I'll just um, finish off by putting up my acknowledgement slide again today. This, this work wouldn't have been done without um, this very impressive team of people. So, so thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much, Jason. That was a fantastic overview. If you have any questions, please feel free to put them into Q&A. I have one question for you, Jason. So you mentioned that there will be some, well, do you foresee any challenges coming in the future in reconciling the differences that self-report measures give us compared to what wearables do and providing how this may influence the upcoming iterations of the guidelines? And most importantly, how can we simply prevent any type of confusion in the public health messaging that we give to the population through these different updated guidelines? Yes, yeah, so thanks, Matthew. So that is, that is the challenge because if you look at the numbers in terms of the amount of physical activity you need to minimize risk with advice, it's a different number. So if you're saying this construct of MVPA is important and you need to do a certain number of minutes of MVPA per week, you get different answers. You get different answers, substantially different, like threefold different answers. And we need to measure activity in the same way we prescribe it. And the fact that only 4% of the population have wearable devices means I don't think at the moment we can move completely to using um, a, um, a guideline number based on wearables, even though that's probably the correct number. So I think we've got this, this phase for the next few years where we're going to need to somehow sort of harmonize the, the two different approaches. I think steps is a reasonable intermediate step because the units are very different and, and you, won't get conclusion, you, won't, you won't get confusion. And I think if we can have steps and potentially have a separate step, a step number of steps or number of minutes above a certain stepping threshold. So you get an intensity measure with steps. So it might be 8,000 steps per day with 2,000 steps above 100 steps per minute. I, I think that might be a, a way forward. And then I think over time, a compromise solutions going to occur. Okay. Thank you very much, Jason. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes so be sure to tune in thank you all for your support and have a great day